Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you will find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Hello, and welcome to Business Line's State of Economy podcast on global economy and strategies. I am Lokeshwari, and today we are joined by Benedict Poros, Director, Index Investment Strategy, S&P Dow Jones Indices. Today, we'll be taking a look at the global active versus passive investment debate and whether international investing is the right way forward in these market conditions. Hello, Ben. Uh, welcome to Business Line State of Economy podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Okay. To start with, I'd like to ask you that uh, the SPIVA, that is the S&P indices versus active uh, report, has been leading the active versus passive debate over the last two decades, as we all know. So can you share some key learnings from these reports over the years with us? Yeah, absolutely. So SPIVA, as you already mentioned, stands for S&P Indices versus Active. And it's a series of uh, now nine uh, regional and semi-annually published scorecards uh, that compare the performance of active equity and in some region, in, in regions, including India, uh, also fixed income, so bond uh, mutual funds, against an appropriate benchmark over various time horizons, starting from six months, one year, three year, five year, 10 year, and in the case of the United States, uh, even uh, 20 years, uh, as, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, if you look uh, across the key learnings or the key takeaways across regions uh, that uh, encompass the United States, Australia, Canada, Europe, uh, India, uh, Japan, Latin, South Africa, and the Middle East and North Africa, what we found is that over uh, over the past 20 years, uh, uh, most active managers uh, had underperformed uh, their appropriate benchmarks uh, over a full market cycle. Of course, there are variations uh, across shorter shorter periods, and I'm happy to go into later on what might be driving uh, these uh, cycles of uh, outperformance and underperformance. But if you look at the an entire uh, market cycle, uh, most managers uh, underperform their benchmarks. And another key theme is that uh, uh, that's been consistent across uh, the regions that we cover is that uh, underperformance uh, rates uh, generally rise uh, with the length of time period that we uh, study uh, the performance of mutual funds. And there, there are good reasons for that. There is an excellent blog uh, by my colleague uh, Craig Glazara on our Indexology blog, uh, which uh, is freely available to everyone. So if I... <laughs> If I if I'm allowed a very brief promotion, I would encourage everyone to follow the blog. It's it's excellent, but he very well explained eloquently in a new blog why it is the case. Uh, and but uh, in a nutshell, uh, the skill uh, persists over time, but luck dissipates, and uh, uh, as a result, uh, the underperformance rates uh, are tend tend to uh, be increasing over uh, the time periods uh, under study. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So you're saying that the active fund managers are struggling to outperform the indices across regions. That's quite, kind of uniform. So do you think it's because of the inherent uncertainties that are built into the equity investments themselves? Or uh, do you think there are other factors that are affecting this? Yeah, uh, so based on uh, our own academic studies and also the study of, uh, of full-time academics, uh, uh, 
we can identify three key reasons, uh, which are structural reasons uh, that uh, drive uh, the underperformance of uh, active managers uh, over uh, longer time periods. And uh, these factors, which uh, I will go into more detail uh, one by one, is uh, the first is the professionalization of the investment management industry, the inherently higher cost structure of uh, active management uh, compared to the passive alternatives. And the most interesting, or at least, and the, probably the least understood by investors is the skewness uh, of stock returns. Uh, so let's take a look at each of these uh, uh, one by one. Yeah. So the, uh, the first one is the professionalization uh, of the investment management uh, industry. And uh, what is really uh, important to realize is that the investment management uh, industry is a zero-sum game uh, in the sense that uh, there is no natural God-given source of outperformance. So uh, someone's alpha or positive uh, outperformance is someone else's underperformance. And that is uh, yes. the, uh, the source of alpha is coming from below average investors. And what that means is that uh, as the average level of skill of players getting uh, ever higher, and there are like many fun uh, indicators of that, uh, which we track, like from uh, starting from the number of uh, CFA charter holders to the number of Bloomberg terminals uh, mm -hmm. that are in use, uh, or the percentage of AUM managed by funds as opposed to individual investors or amateurs. But all these uh, metrics that, uh, that we track point uh, to the direction of the professionalization of the in, in the investment management uh, in industry and that that means that uh, that means two things one is that the absolute level uh, of uh, the players in the industry is getting ever higher mm -hmm. and second the relative skill difference between various players uh, also uh, gets compressed and uh, counterintuitive there is a fascinating uh, academic paper on that uh, which basically dissects uh, this phenomenon in great detail uh, by a columbia university academic uh, called michael mobson uh, mm -hmm. called uh, the paradox of skill but it goes into great detail of why as the average level of absolute skill, skill increases and the dispersion of, uh, of skill between the good and the bad players uh, gets narrowed down uh, outperformance uh, is becoming uh, ever uh, ever more difficult and uh, elusive, I would say as well. So that's uh, that's the first uh, factor. The second one is uh, is just costs. So uh, low cost, uh, I think it's probably the the reason which is the simplest to understand. So of course, active managers uh, incur yeah. many of the costs like research, more frequent trading, management fees, the costs of uh, company visits, and so. Uh, so forth, which makes it inherently more expensive than uh, passive investing. And uh, the, as Einstein, uh, Albert uh, Einstein said, compounding is the eighth wonder of the world. And these mm. costs, uh, which means is that uh, yeah. uh, if, if even if any single year this cost difference doesn't sound like a huge one, like for example in the US we made a uh, we made a detailed study on that, and in uh, in 2021, for example, there was a 60. 0.62%, so 62 basis point uh, cost difference between the average expenses of an active fund and an average expense uh, ratio of passive funds. So it doesn't sound much, but uh, if you compound it over years and over decades, yeah. it really, really adds up and uh, it really puts uh, active managers at a very significant uh, uh, disadvantage. And uh, the third reason which I found personally the most fascinating is the 
but also the probably the least understood is the uh, very strong positive skewness uh, of uh, equity returns. So if you look at like the normal distribution, I guess everyone uh, studied it at school, which is just basically a bell curve, which with fifty mm. percent probability of uh, of a given observation falling above average and fifty percent uh, falling uh, below the average. But uh, if you look at long-term stock returns, uh, you see a distribution which is very far uh, from the normal normal distribution. So just uh, looking at the example of the S&P BSE 100 index uh, for that uh, in the past 10 years between December 31st, uh, 2012 and uh, December 30th, uh, 2022, what we can observe is that the median return, uh, which... Uh, which means that uh, basically that half the stocks returned more than that and half of them, half the stocks uh, returned less was 54%. But the arithmetic average is 137%, which is over twice as high as the median return. And uh, what that means is that if uh, stock returns would be normally uh, distributed, then it, it would mean that if you pick any random, uh, random stock uh, from the BSE 100 in this case, uh, there would be a 50% chance, as I mentioned, of that particular uh, stock uh, delivering above average performance. But if you look at, uh, uh, but if the distribution is uh, skewed, like uh, what we see in uh, the stock market, this uh, stock picking or selection uh, becomes much harder. So due to the turnover of stocks in the index, uh, there were actually 337 stocks uh, that at some point were part of the S&P BSE 100 index in the 10 years leading up to December 2022. 20, uh, but out of the, the thir- 337, only 87 have actually beaten the BSE 100, which means that if you randomly uh, pick the stock from these 337 stocks, there was only a 26% chance uh, that uh, this particular stock has outperformed the index and not 50%, which means that stock picking is uh, really an uphill struggle and it's, uh, it's, it's very challenging because a few massive large winners uh, carry much of the weight in delivering uh, long-term uh, returns in equity markets. Mm-hmm. This skewness, uh, is it also being seen in short-term period? Like if you see just one-year period, you still see this kind of 50% of stocks outperforming and 50% underperforming? In a shorter time horizons, it is less acute and uh, randomness uh, plays a much larger uh, role over one-year horizon. So it can vary and it's much closer to 50%. But uh, as uh, again, like it's just the power of compounding, and also uh, uh, just by the nature of uh, of a share or a, a piece of share, which is a limited liability mm-hmm. uh, instrument, meaning that the maximum you can lose is one hundred percent, but you can gain one hundred, two hundred, three hundred, yeah. one thousand, or even in the India market, there are many hundred beggar, so to speak, hundred beggar yes. uh, companies which go up a hundred times. So just by this uh, nature of uh, of uh, stock as an investment vehicle having limited liability and maximum downside is 100 and maximum upside can be like you know 10 times 20 times 100 times even uh is uh, means that over long term horizons the distribution of returns get, is is getting more and more skewed so if over very long uh, horizons uh, there was a study done by uh, uh, U.S. academic called Bessemlinter in the U.S. and what he found is that uh, just for over it's it was a, a study for around a hundred years. Of course, the U.S. stock market has the longest uh, history uh, in the world. Just four percent of stocks uh, in the U.S. delivered uh, 
basically the entire positive real return in the US oh. market, which wow. means that uh, it's, it's really it's, uh, it's like finding really uh, finding a needle in the haystack. And yeah. of course, you can try to do that, but you have to realize that uh, that it is uh, it is uh, very challenging and uh, odds are against you. That kind of explains why the fund managers are struggling so much. I mean, it's more of a game of a chance the way you're putting it. You know? So uh, I'd like to ask you, what is the experience with fixed income funds? Because we the conversation mostly is around the equity funds. So fixed income, how is this uh, performance versus benchmarks? Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's an interesting uh, segment of the market for the reason is, uh, that uh, that basically in uh, in fixed income markets, what we see is that there are certain sources of outperformance which uh, tend to work most of the time. So it, it's it's quite often that we see in global markets uh, that uh, let's say nine years out of ten or uh, four four years out of five, so uh, in a relative high percentage of years. Uh, a higher percentage of uh, fixed income managers outperform the benchmark than in the case of uh, equities. And as I mentioned, it's uh, uh, it's uh, in large part uh, probably due to the fact that uh, two popular strategies, one is taking duration uh, mm-hmm. risk and second, uh, going down on credit quality. So like, uh, 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 let's say, including corporate bonds in a, uh, in a fund, even in a small proportion, which is benchmarked against uh, a government index, tend to produce a pickup in returns in uh, in a more stable manner, I would say, uh, than than in equity markets. So it's uh, unless there is a there is a recession or a market turmoil, uh, this uh, uh, this credit exposure or long duration exposure uh, often uh, do deliver uh, positive. Uh, positive returns uh, in a, in a higher percentage of uh, of years, but again, like it's, um, I wouldn't say it's picking up pennies in, in front of the steamroller, but it's still uh, it's still a fact that uh, better performance uh, for fixed income funds often come from taking additional risk compared to the benchmark uh, that uh, that the given fund is uh, mm-hmm. uh, is measured against and. Uh, Again, like looking at, uh, at uh, the full market cycle, including uh, recessions, uh, that the basic long-term tendency is uh, similar in, uh, in most of the world. That uh, fixed income funds looking at, at a 10-year uh, time horizon, for example, tend to uh, underperform their mm-hmm. respective cycles. Once uh, the years when uh, there is a recession is, uh, is taken, taken into account. So just, just to... Just to look at the Indian market as an example, over the over the past uh, one year, so in 2022, the majority of uh, the Indian composite bond uh, universe uh, did in fact uh, outperform mm-hmm. our benchmark, which is the S&P BSC India Bond Index. But if you look at uh, the, the three-year plus uh, time horizons, what you see is that uh, that the majority of uh, fixed income uh, funds uh, tend to underperform uh, yeah. the benchmark. Mm-hmm. So coming to the market cycles itself, so do you see any trend of underperformance of active managers in certain market cycles? Because, for instance, uh, I saw that in uh, 2022, the large cap equity funds in US, the underperformance was much lower. And uh, I saw the lower underperformance in 2007 as well and in 2013 as well. So do you think some trends are there in like in bear markets 
the underperformance of funds is lower or some such trend? Yeah, absolutely. So it's an area where we, where we have uh, conducted uh, extensive research and there are indeed uh, certain market environments uh, when it is uh, relatively easier uh, for active managers uh, to perform if they have the necessary skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so we identified uh, three uh, main drivers uh, that uh, uh, that are conducive or uh, that help uh, active managers if if those uh, drivers are present in uh, in a certain market. So the first one uh, is uh, the dispersion of stock returns, uh, and what dispersion means is uh, it's a measure of uh, how much uh, the average stocks deviates from the index itself. So just uh, just to illustrate with an extremely simple example, uh, if uh, like if you have an index of two constituents, uh, if the index is up ten percent, it can achieve it if uh, one stock is uh, uh, up twenty percent and the other one is uh, flat, mm-hmm. or both stocks are up ten percent each, and that's how the index is also up ten uh, percent. So in the first example, dispersion is high because uh, there is a twenty, uh, uh, there is a ten percent. Uh, average deviation of performance between the index constituents and the index itself. And in the latter case, dispersion is low because uh, bo- uh, both stocks or all stocks, which, which in this very simple example means two, uh, mm-hmm. perform exactly the same as the index. And of mm-hmm. course, uh, uh, if uh, uh, what this means, and, and this very simple uh, example is illustrates, uh, in, the, in the latter case, when dispersion is low, there is no reward for identifying uh, better or worse performing stocks or uh, uh, stock basically you, you do all the analysis but if all all stocks perform the same or very similar to each other there is not not much reward for you to identify the ever so slightly better performer but if the dispersion is high and you successful in identifying the one that delivers 20 percent and avoid or underfade the one that uh, that is basically uh, flat then uh, your exercise in uh, Company analysis and stock picking uh, would be high, so that's uh, that's that's the first uh, that's the first condition that uh, that is okay. helpful uh, for active managers. High dispersion. Second one, we tend uh, we historically observed uh, in many markets, uh, and there are examples of that in uh, the most recent uh, SPIPA uh, scorecards. Is that if uh, stock prices fall, active managers tend to have a lower underperformance rates and it's it's due to the fact that the majority of active managers either either have some uh, cash buffer or cash hoarding they tend not to be fully invested and just always uh, leave a bit of dry dry power to both either to uh, face redemption requests or to opportunistically uh, pick stocks if they identify anything good but uh, what we observed is that Big, big majority or a like big uh, proportion of funds just have few percentage allocation to cash, not cash not being fully invested, which means that if uh, stock uh, markets fall uh, around the world, just like as you pointed out in the US, that was the case uh, last year, the S&P 500 was down 18%, we tend to, fall, uh, we tend to see lower on the performance rates for active managers. And the third uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, um, driver of active manager uh, outperformers or at least lower on the performance rate which was also present last year in the us if you mentioned the us uh, was that uh, if the leadership uh, of market is broad broad based and less driven by a few extremely large winners uh, the uh, active managers tend to do better the reason for that that uh, for that is that uh, 
active managers, again, it's a tendency that we saw across markets, they, on a relative basis, tend to underrate the largest constituents in a given uh, index, and they tend to overrate uh, the smaller uh, constituents, uh, which means that if the smaller stocks uh, do better in a relative basis, like what was the case uh, in most markets around the world last year, active managers uh, tend to do better. So these are the three main uh, drivers of uh, active manager performance over, over uh, shorter time horizons. So uh, there's a lot of talk about international investing these days and people are looking at investing uh, in other other regions, other countries and so on. So do you really think that uh, international investing or global diversification really works because markets are so interconnected these days with most markets moving together? What's your view on that? Yeah, so uh, there have been uh, many, uh, many studies uh, and we have a whole, a whole range of uh, Research papers and blogs on the topic uh, of diverse, international diversification. We have a slightly dated uh, paper on India, but we, uh, we examine the same for uh, Australia, for South Africa, and many other regions in the world. And what we do find is that uh, that diversification, uh, international diversification, does work. And there are several uh, reasons for that. Uh, the first is that uh, even if uh, the global economy is more interconnected than it was a few decades ago, there are very distant, very distinct uh, differences uh, between the sectoral uh, composition of uh, of any single uh, market uh, around the world. Because you know, every every economy has uh, sectors, or every country has sectors where. Uh, it has strong firms and uh, market-leading uh, firms, and there are uh, other sectors where the given country doesn't have a uh, natural edge and is, uh, uh, is represented as a result mm -hmm. uh, with a much smaller weight in the index. So just, for example, if we uh, take a look at the sector composition of the Indian versus uh, the U.S. stock markets, what we see is that Indian market, uh, like if you take the broadest uh, or, or a broad-based uh, benchmark like the S&P BSE 500, uh, has a, a very significant overrate in financials and materials uh, and a, a significant underrate in information technology and healthcare compared to the sectoral composition of the S&P 500. And uh, various sectors uh, behave very differently, even in the same economic environment. Some sectors are defensive, like consumer staples and utilities and healthcare, and uh, some other sectors are cyclicals, like uh, consumer discretionary, for example, uh, which means that uh, 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 diversifying internationally uh, would deliver uh, diversification, diversification benefit just, uh, just uh, via uh, giving exposure uh, to different uh, sectors of the stock, and the second uh, impact uh, is uh, just coming from the from the fact that uh, despite uh, uh, the increased interconnectedness uh, of the global economy, there are still uh, economic cycles which are moving in a different uh, pace uh, in, in various countries. Uh, for example. Uh, yeah, just just to mention something different uh, compared to India, but another emerging market is China. If you look at uh, just the past few years, what we saw is that uh, China uh, was much more resilient in the first uh, in the initial part of the pandemic than uh, than global markets. But then it became a major laggard, uh, while uh, the rest of the 
uh, world was recovering. Or even if you look at shorter cycles, like between the end of October last year, uh, when the uh, when the gradual reopening started until the end of January, uh, uh, China performed much better than uh, uh, than uh, global markets or than, than the U.S. or than the India, and then uh, then the recovery sputtered uh, over there. But uh, even if we just uh, return to the example of uh, of India, there 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 have been multi-year cycles of uh, performance and underperformance uh, of the Indian markets. Uh, uh, compared to the rest of the world, like there was the demonetization uh, drive, which, uh, which triggered a significant uh, on the performance of local markets. And in the most recent three years, despite uh, this year's uh, wobbles, we see a uh, quite significant, actually, an annualized uh, 9% outperformance uh, starting from 2020. Uh, against the S&P 500. So there is certainly value uh, in, uh, in diversifying uh, internationally, uh, despite, despite the greater interconnectedness. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, how does an investor go about using indices to do this international investing? Is that a right way to do as a tool? Yeah, no, absolutely. So just to quote, uh, uh, the Nobel Prize uh, winner economist uh, Harry Markowitz, who was the founder uh, of, uh, in, uh, of uh, MPT, which is a modern portfolio theory, said that the only free lunch uh, available to investors is diversification. And uh, this observation is as true uh, today as, uh, as it was when he made it a few decades ago. And uh, to implement uh, diversification in practice, uh, indices can be a very, uh, very useful uh, tool. Uh, because uh, they are uh, rule, rules-based, they are transparent, and they are also, uh, as we talked about uh, previously, uh, are also a cost-efficient uh, way for investors uh, to gain exposure to a wide range of uh, market segments, uh, including regional equity benchmarks like the S&P 500 or the S&P BS, uh, BSE Sensex in India, or uh, particular sectors like IT and, uh, and energy. And also, uh, as the third generation in the innovation indexing uh, to uh, various factors like low volatility or growth and value. And again, uh, I can refer to a few uh, uh, academic studies in the region which uh, examined the main drivers of returns in an internationally diversified uh, stock portfolio or actually a, a, an asset portfolio. And but. What study after study has confirmed uh, is that the uh, bulk of like ninety percent plus uh, of the uh, of the returns uh, of of a broad diversified portfolio is coming from uh, picking geographical regions and asset class and asset classes and the actual uh, active part of picking the exact constituents uh, in uh, uh, in these uh, broad uh, asset classes and geographies. Uh, are adding a diminishingly small uh, contribution to the overall portfolio return. Mm -hmm. For the last question, I'd like to know about equal weighted in indices because that's something that uh, we are coming to hear more in India. It's a little bit, little bit new in India. So equal weighted versus market cap weighted. So what are the pros and cons and which one do you think is better for investors to follow? 
Yeah, uh, so equal weighted uh, indices uh, are, are relatively, I would say, uh, old in the US. So the uh, S&P equal weight uh, just celebrated its uh, 20th uh, anniversary this year. Uh, so we, we did produce a range of uh, materials to celebrate uh, that uh, anniversary. Uh, which again, like uh, I can again refer to our great uh, blog, uh, indexologyblog.com. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but what uh, basically equal weight indices do is that uh, they include the same constituents as their market capitalization weighted indices, but uh, rather than weighting these constituents by market cap, uh, each company is allocated a fixed uh, equal weight uh, in the index uh, at each rebalance date. So for the uh, for the S&P 500, for example, uh, that means uh, that uh, all 500 of the constituents have a 0.2% weight uh, in the index, as opposed to uh, having uh, 20% plus in the, in the largest uh, uh, few constituents. And uh, this, uh, this feature of equal weighting lends certain characteristics which are uh, to the equal weighted versions of uh, indices which are unique to them and which uh, strongly distinguish uh, them uh, from their market capitalization counterparts. First of all, it introduces uh, a, uh, if you look at, uh, we have uh, a great uh, monthly product called the, uh, the factor dashboard, uh, which. Uh, uh, which uh, decomposes uh, uh, many, like more than a dozen S&P 500 factor indices into their key drivers. But if we zoom in, uh, zoom in into the S&P 500 equal weight index, uh, what we uh, tend to find uh, is that uh, it has a, uh, a bias towards uh, small size and uh, value, the value factor compared to its parent index, the S&P 500. Uh, which uh, which means that uh, over long long time horizons, uh, uh, the equal weight version of uh, the traditional indices uh, can take advantage of the so-called small size or small cap uh, effect, which uh, Fama French and uh, their uh, academic predecessors have uh, widely documented. So th- to be slightly uh, more concrete on uh, uh, on the extent or uh, or the dimensions or uh, of this uh, small cap in, uh, effect uh, if you look at the the 20 years uh, for uh, from January 2003 to December 2022 so basically since the S&P 500 uh, equal weight is live what we see is that uh, the equal weight version of the S&P 500 outperformed uh, the main benchmark the S&P 500 by about one and a half percent annually uh, with uh, the S&P 500 itself delivering 10% annualized returns since uh, uh, sorry, January 2003 and the equal weight version delivering 11.5% uh, return. In terms of uh, sector composition, uh, it also tends to, uh, uh, tends to of course, uh, overweight uh, sectors with relatively uh, smaller constituents and uh, and underweight sectors uh, that have uh, larger firms on average. So again, if you look at uh, the S&P 500 and the S&P 500 equal weight, what we see is that uh, equal weight version has a much higher weight in industrials, real estate, for example, and materials, whereas it's underweight information technology, uh, healthcare and communication services uh, compared to 
to the May index. And it is also a, uh, a interesting uh, benchmark potentially that uh, men, uh, that investors in active funds may want to benchmark uh, their investment manager against uh, because uh, as again we discussed previously the uh, active management community as a whole tend to have a bias towards smaller uh, stocks uh, as i mentioned previously active managers as a whole tend to underweight the largest uh, constituents uh, of an index and tend to overweight smaller ones which which means that uh, they have a slight uh, bias i would say towards uh, mm-hmm. uh towards the equal weight version of of, of a given cap weighted index uh, and we did actually again like uh, don't don't want to push our website uh, too hard but uh, just as a part of the 20th anniversary celebrations uh, we did uh, run a uh, a spiva report a special uh, anniversary edition which uh, which looked at the performance of active funds versus uh, the s p 500 equal weight index so i, I encourage uh, listeners who uh, want to dig deeper uh, to check out that analysis as well. We'll definitely take a look at that. So thank you very much, Ben, for uh, sharing your insights with us. It was very useful. Thanks. Uh, it was a pleasure to be on. And I look forward to our next uh, conversation. Bye, everyone.